Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon and English study group where we study the words of the Buddha. These are the teachings of the Buddha in English, translated over from the Pali Canon. We're in this book, Volume 4, that's titled Exploring the Path to Enlightenment. This book goes through a series of chapters that are in the words of the Buddha provides you a reference back to the original source text and has some explanations from a teacher and practitioner who is able to help you understand the words of the Buddha in a deeper way. So really pleased that you decided to join us for today's class because if you've joined us for the first time, you'll actually be able to study the words of the Buddha as we display those on the screen during our class. We've actually been studying chapters 11 through 20 this week, and people all over the world have been studying these chapters, and then we come together as a way to discuss them and seek guidance in them and really kind of discuss them together as a group in order to support and encourage and motivate each other on the path to enlightenment. So by learning the words of the Buddha, you can understand the true path to enlightenment rather than just believing what he taught or trying to kind of listen to hearsay or what one person says he taught versus another person, rather than having to rely on those kind of things, you can actually go back to the original source text, which is the Pali Canon. And we've got this book series, volumes one through 13, that is called The Words of the Buddha, The Path to Enlightenment, Revealing the Hidden. And each individual volume exposes more and more teachings of the Buddha so that you can understand them through learning them, reflecting on them, and practicing them so you can see the truth for yourself. In this program, we use volume 2 through 13, and we happen to be in volume 4 now. And we're doing chapters 11 through 20 this week. Typically, what we'll do is we'll start this class with a meditation in order to prepare the mind for learning and absorbing the teachings and retaining those for a a longer period of time to help us actually apply them in practice. But today we've got a few chapters that are fairly long and I thought that we would maybe forego our meditation and just move right into actually studying the words of the Buddha because those that join this class are typically meditating on their own two or three times a day for 30 minutes or longer or at least kind of building up to that kind of practice. We just do this little short meditation in class just as a way to kind of prepare the mind and support and encourage each other along this path. So If it's okay with all of you, I'll just go ahead and move right into chapter 11 and we can have somebody read this chapter, then I will teach about the chapter and then open up for any questions. Basim and Manal, our moderators for today, 
are going to just be sure that we have volunteers that can read each chapter as we go through. And Bossom has asked me to read this very first chapter, chapter 11. So I'm going to go ahead and read that for you guys. And I'm going to teach as I go, because this is one of those longer chapters that I mentioned that is part of today's class. So rather than read all the way through it and then backtrack and actually teach, what I'll do is I'll kind of read a section of it and then kind of share the teachings with you guys, open up to any questions, and then move to the next piece and the next piece and the next piece. And this is quite a long chapter, so this will give us time to be sure that we can absorb the teachings that the Buddha has for us here. So I'd like to welcome all of you guys once again and uh, welcome to our class. If you don't have these books, you can actually download them from our website, which is buddhadailywisdom.com. And from there, you can click on the link for free books. And from there, you can either download the books, you can download it and print it, or you can get a printed copy from Amazon if you'd like. So we'll go ahead and start with this chapter 11, which is titled Cultivating Mindfulness of Breathing Fulfills Four Foundations of Mindfulness seven factors of enlightenment, true wisdom and liberation. What you're gonna see in this chapter is the Buddha is really highlighting the importance of breathing mindfulness meditation. This is a meditation that he always prioritized as the most important meditation for our practice. And what he's gonna share with you in this chapter is he's gonna show you how by doing breathing mindfulness meditation, it leads to developing the four foundations of mindfulness is which we need in order to attain enlightenment. One needs to develop these four foundations of mindfulness. And then by having those, it helps you to develop the seven factors of enlightenment. And then by having those, it helps you get to this true wisdom and liberation, essentially enlightenment. So the Buddha is going to show you a step-by-step analysis here going into a lot of detail to explain the importance of breathing mindfulness meditation but connecting in all these other teachings to show you how they lead to enlightenment so here the first part of this chapter starts out with there is monks one thing which when developed and cultivated fulfills four things and four things which when developed and cultivated fulfill seven things and seven things which when developed and cultivated fulfills two things. Concentration by mindfulness of breathing or breathing mindfulness meditation monks is the one thing which when developed and cultivated fulfills the four foundations of mindfulness. The four foundations of mindfulness when developed and cultivated fulfills the seven factors of enlightenment. The seven factors of enlightenment, when developed and cultivated, fulfills true wisdom and liberation. Here he's starting off just helping you to understand what he's actually going to be teaching in this cause and effect, this causality or this causal relationship between breathing mindfulness meditation and ultimately enlightenment or liberation of mind. But there's these other things that need to be developed along the way in order to get to this enlightened mental state. So here's the first part. Mindfulness of breathing fulfills the four foundations of mindfulness. How, monks, is concentration by mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation developed and cultivated so that it fulfills the four foundations of mindfulness? Here, monks, 
a monk having gone to the forest, to the foot of a tree, or to an empty hut, sits down, having folded his legs crosswise, straightened his body, and set up mindfulness in front of him. Just mindful, he breathes in. Mindful, he breathes out. Okay, let me just stop here for a moment and help you understand mindfulness. Mindfulness is awareness of mind. And what he's going to help us to understand here is he's going to go through almost like he's guiding us in meditation. And he's going to show how by developing this breathing mindfulness meditation that it develops these four foundations of mindfulness of having awareness of the bodily sensations, having awareness of the feelings that come into the mind, having awareness of the condition of the mind, and having awareness of the mental objects in the mind. In order to get to enlightenment, a practitioner would need to develop the four foundations of mindfulness so that you are aware of this discontentedness earlier and earlier in this cycle of how it arises. Because if you can catch the discontentedness at the bodily sensations, cut it off there and let it go, then it never comes into the mind to become these discontent feelings. And then if we don't catch it at the bodily sensations and we can catch it at the feelings and cut it off there, then it won't affect the condition of the mind. And if we don't catch it at the feelings, we can cut it off in the condition of the mind so it doesn't condition the mind for multiple days or weeks, then it won't form these mental objects in the mind. And the reason why we have these mental objects and we have these experiences of discontentedness is because we're not aware. We don't have the wisdom of this four foundations of mindfulness. So when we develop the wisdom of the four foundations of mindfulness and we practice them in daily life, that we can be aware of these bodily sensations sooner and sooner, then we can cut it off and let it go. And it's breathing mindfulness meditation that helps us to develop those four foundations of mindfulness and allows us to cut off and let go of the discontentedness as we start observing it as bodily sensations. So here the Buddha is going to go through this long description of guiding us in meditation. This isn't something that you need to remember or that you need to repeat as part of your meditation. The guidance that I give in the group learning program and other classes where I guide you in meditation, as long as you're doing meditation in that way, that's leading to what the Buddha is teaching here. He's just going through a lot of detail to help you understand that. So this first part where he's guiding in meditation, he says, breathing in long, he knows I breathe in long, or breathing out long, he knows I breathe out long. Breathing in short, he knows I breathe in short, or breathing out short, he knows I breathe out short. What he's essentially saying here is bring the awareness of mind to the breath. Be aware of the inhale, be aware of the exhale. Focus the mind on the breath. This is how I guide you guys in meditation. When I first start out, I share the same approach, the same objective, but I just use different words. The Buddha is using different words here to help you bringing the awareness to the breath at the beginning of meditation. Now he says, he trains thus, experiencing the whole body. I will breathe in. He trains thus, experiencing the whole body, I will breathe out. He trains thus, calming the bodily sensations, I will breathe in. 
He trains thus, calming the bodily sensations, I will breathe out. So as you're starting to establish the mind and fixate it on the breath, as the mind becomes aware of the entire body and any bodily sensations, the Buddha is saying, calm those bodily sensations. Use the mind to calm down any bodily sensations that are being experienced in the body. This is how you start to become aware of the bodily sensations in meditation. And then when you do that and you develop that ability, then outside of meditation, you'll have awareness of these bodily sensations when the anger starts to come in or the frustration or the boredom or the happiness or the excitement. You'll be aware of those bodily sensations if you've trained in meditation to experience them, observe them, and then calm them, calm the bodily sensations as part of your meditation. So if you are aware of any bodily sensations arising during meditation, the Buddha is saying, calm those. He trains thus, experiencing joy, I will breathe in. He trains thus, experiencing joy, I will breathe out. He trains thus, experiencing peacefulness, I will breathe in. He trains thus, experiencing peacefulness, I will breathe out. So as you calm the bodily sensations, this is where the joy and the peacefulness might come into the mind. And if you observe that joy and peacefulness, you might get excited that the mind is so joyful and peaceful. But essentially what the Buddha is saying is just focus on the breath. Even when that joy and that peacefulness arises in meditation, don't get all excited about it. Oh my goodness, I'm close to enlightenment or something like that. Don't think like that. Just experience the joy. Stay focused on the breath. I breathe in. If you experience joy in the mind, focus on the breath. I breathe out. If you experience peacefulness during your meditation, remain unaffected. Continue to breathe in and continue to breathe out. No matter what you're experiencing there, joy or peacefulness. He trains thus, experiencing the mental activity. I breathe in. He trains thus, experiencing the mental activity. I will breathe out. He trains thus, calming the mental activity. I will breathe in. He trains thus, calming the mental activity. I will breathe out. So here, if you notice mental activity where the mind moves off the breath or you're noticing thoughts or ideas starting to arise in meditation, as you experience those, the Buddha is saying calm those or I use the word cut them off and let them go. The Buddha uses that language too in other parts of his teachings. Here he's using the word calm the mental activities. But what he says in other parts of his teachings is cut it off and let it go. So when you notice this mental activity going on, whether it's wholesome or unwholesome in meditation, you cut that off and let it go and just remain focused on the breath. That's what he's saying here. He trains thus, experiencing the mind, I will breathe in. He trains thus, experiencing the mind, I will breathe out. He trains thus, gladdening the mind, I will breathe in. He trains thus, gladdening the mind, I will breathe out. He trains thus, concentrating the mind, I will breathe in. He trains thus, concentrating the mind, I will breathe out. And he's going through all of these rather than repeating them over and over. He says, liberating the mind, breathe in, breathe out. Reflecting on impermanence, breathe in, breathe out. Reflecting on fading away, reflecting on elimination, reflecting on letting go. 
So here, what you're doing is as you notice and experience the mind and what's going on in the mind, you would like to gladden the mind, bring that joy into the mind. You would like to concentrate the mind, focus it on the breath, letting go, liberating the mind, not allowing it to be pulled in different directions during meditation, liberate it from that craving, desire, attachment where the mind wants to be pulled in different directions. You might choose at different times, not all the time, but sometimes in meditation you might reflect on impermanence. Notice how the sounds around you as you're meditating are impermanent. Notice how the wind blows and it's impermanent. Notice how the thoughts and ideas are impermanent. Notice how that little tickle on the skin is impermanent. Really soak into the mind how all these things are impermanent. This is reflecting on impermanence during meditation. Reflecting on fading away. Notice how the thoughts and the ideas just fade away. They arise, they exist, and then they fade away. That's the reflecting on elimination, how the mind eliminates these thoughts, ideas. This is all because of impermanence. And then reflecting on letting go. Sometimes if the mind is longing so much and you're finding it really difficult to bring the mind back to the breath, occasionally you might just repeat in the mind, let go, let go, let go, and bring the mind back to the breath. You would like to get to the point ultimately over multiple months where you won't need any of this stuff. You can just go into meditation. You can focus on the breath and it's just always on the breath pretty much. And the mind is just completely calm and peaceful. But these are some pointers and some tips of things that you can use. And now the Buddha goes through this whole series of things again where he says, you know, breathing in long, breathing out long, going all the way through the bodily sensations and everything else. And he says, on that occasion, the monk resides reflecting on the body in the body. This is the bodily sensations as bodily sensations. Dedicated, clearly comprehending, mindful, having removed craving and displeasure in regard to the world. So here, as you're in meditation, the mind needs to let go of the world, not craving or wanting the world to be a certain way, and also not taking displeasure in the world, like, oh, the world is so miserable, it's so horrible. Yeah, we know there's challenging things going on in the world, but rather than look at it in a pessimistic view, just understand that those things are there and understand what your goal is, is to let go of all this stuff and not crave for the world to be a certain way. And now the Buddha is going to go through and he's going to explain how doing this, not only for the bodily sensations, but for feelings, for the condition of the mind and mental objects as well. So he says, for what reason? So for what reason are we doing all of this? I call this a certain kind of body, monks, that is, breathing in and breathing out. Therefore, monks, on that occasion, the monk resides reflecting on the body in the body, dedicated, clearly comprehending, mindful, having removed craving and displeasure in regard to the world. And he goes through the next series, experiencing joy, peacefulness, mental activity, all of these other things. And once again, reminding that 
On that occasion, the monks reside reflecting on feelings in feelings. Understand the difference between the bodily sensations and now the feelings are coming into the mind. You need to develop that level of awareness in the mind where you can see those as two completely separate things. That prior to feelings coming into the mind, there's these bodily sensations that occur. And then, oh, there's the feelings. Here comes the feelings. And now if the feelings linger for long enough, now it's going to affect the condition of the mind. And now when it affects the condition of the mind, it moves into these mental objects and seeing those things as completely separate things. For what reason? I call this a certain kind of feeling, monks. That is close attention to breathing in and breathing out. Therefore, monks, on that occasion, the monk resides reflecting on feelings and feelings, dedicated, clearly comprehending, mindful, having removed craving and displeasure in regard to the world. And now he goes through some more aspects of what we were just talking about in regards to meditation, helping you to be able to see each individual foundation of mindfulness separately. For what reason? I say, monks, that there is no development of concentration by mindfulness of breathing or breathing mindfulness meditation for one who is muddled or lacks clear comprehension. Therefore, monks, on that occasion, the monk resides reflecting on the mind in mind, dedicated, clearly comprehending, mindful, having removed craving and displeasure in regard to the world. So what he's sharing here is, that you need to develop concentration and having that concentration during meditation is what's going to train the mind for this mindfulness, but it's also training the mind for this concentration as well so that the mind isn't muddled, that the mind has clear comprehension because when one lacks clear comprehension, the mind is going to be muddled and it's going to be hard to work through that pollution. Of course, that's what this whole practice is doing, but what you ultimately would like to get to is clear comprehension, and the way you do that is through training the mind on this entire path, but namely here in meditation, this is an important part of training the mind to get to that comprehension and that concentration. So now he goes through some other parts of that whole long piece that we were just talking about there, now talking about the mental objects. Having seen with wisdom what is the abandoning of craving and displeasure, the monk is one who looks on closely with equanimity. So here the Buddha is saying, if you see with wisdom that it's craving, desire, attachment that is causing this displeasure, causing this discontentedness, then abandoning the craving, desire, attachment, then you can practice equanimity. Because equanimity is a calmness, composure, evenness of temper. As long as there's craving, desire, attachment in the mind, it's going to arise these strong feelings. But if you know the wisdom that craving, desire, attachment is what leads to those strong feelings, then when you notice that the mind is in a difficult situation, then you arise this equanimity, always working to arise this calmness, this composure, this evenness of temper. And if you understand craving, desire, attachment, and you understand equanimity, then you can arise this equanimity rather than allowing the craving, desire, attachment to produce these strong feelings. 
Therefore, monks, on that occasion, the monk resides reflecting on mental objects and mental objects, dedicated, clearly comprehending, mindful, having removed craving and displeasure in regard to the world. It is, monks, when concentration by mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation is developed and cultivated in this way that it fulfills the four foundations of mindfulness. So by training and breathing mindfulness meditation, you will develop these four foundations of mindfulness. You'll need to develop and be able to see clearly those are the bodily sensations, these are the feelings, this is the condition of the mind being affected by the feelings, and now there's these mental objects. And seeing that in meditation and then being able to practice that outside of meditation too. Are there any questions on this part here? The way that you ask questions is put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or ask your question by raising your hand electronically in Zoom. Well, as for the guidance, uh, Gautama Buddha is sharing about a uh, reflection while meditation. Should one be focused on observing the breath or be focused on reflecting on impermanence and fading away and so on? If you deeply understand impermanence and you know that all these material objects and things around us are impermanent, there's no need to reflect on impermanence anymore in your meditation. You've already realized the truth of the universal truth of impermanence. So if you already have realized that is the truth, then no reason to reflect on this in meditation. But if you're just starting out in your meditation practice, you're just getting acquainted with the Buddhist teachings, you don't quite understand yet that all these things are impermanent, then you might need a few sessions or a week or two of reflecting on impermanence in your meditation before you can then leave that behind and move on. So this isn't something that you should always be doing. You should do it until the mind deeply understands and has soaked in and sees the truth with wisdom that the universal truth of impermanence is in fact the truth. Well, while intellectually being able to be sure that everything will be every, every conditioned thing is impermanent, but in some cases the mind is not aware of the uh, truth of impermanence. Does this mean that the mind is not deeply understanding uh, this universal truth? Yeah, we can understand it on an intellectual level, and most students, once I introduce it to them in about five minutes, they can see it on an intellectual level. But then you've got to soak it into the mind so that when you walk around in the world, you can see that the sun is impermanent, the clouds are impermanent, the wind is impermanent, the trees are impermanent, your house is impermanent, the car is impermanent, this physical body is impermanent, the sidewalk's impermanent, the clothing that you wear is impermanent. All these different things are impermanent. You've got to deeply soak it into the mind. I walked around for a good number of days just looking at everything around me and trying to find something that was permanent. And I did that for many days until I proved to myself and I could see deeply and clearly the wisdom of the Buddhist teachings that I wasn't believing that things were impermanent. I could deeply see it for myself. You know, when I looked out at a fence and I saw that it was painted a certain color and now the paint is fading, right? Or I could see one part of the fence was nice and strong and another part of it was deteriorating. You know, that's impermanence. Or, you know, you thought you were on your way to go somewhere and you had an appointment to meet somebody at 10 a.m. 
and they called you at 10.05 or 10.15 and said, hey, I can't make it today. I had a, a challenge with my transportation or I need to go take my kids to school or whatever. See that as impermanence too. Not just these material objects around us, but when somebody calls and cancels an appointment, that's impermanent. Or if you're sharing a certain opinion and somebody disagrees with you, that's impermanence too because people can't permanently agree with you. Not everyone in the world is going to agree with you. So every single facet of our life has impermanence permeating throughout it. And you have to be able to see this impermanence in everything that you're doing in order to liberate the mind. So whether you're doing that in meditation or you're doing that outside of meditation, you need to be reflecting on this impermanence and deeply soak it into the mind and see it everywhere you go. Thanks, teacher. No more questions. All right. So let's go to the next part of this teaching, which is four foundations of mindfulness fulfill the seven factors of enlightenment. And how, monks, are the four foundations of mindfulness developed and cultivated so that they fulfill the seven factors of enlightenment? Whenever, monks, a monk resides reflecting on the body in the body, on that occasion, unmuddled mindfulness is established in that monk. Whenever, monks, unmuddled mindfulness has been established in a monk, on that occasion, the enlightenment factor of mindfulness is aroused by that monk. On that occasion, the monk develops the enlightenment factor of mindfulness. On that occasion, the enlightenment factor of mindfulness goes to fulfillment by development in that monk. So what he's sharing here is whenever you're reflecting on the bodily sensations and you can observe clearly these bodily sensations, then at that point, you know that you've developed this enlightenment factor of mindfulness fully and completely. If you're not aware of the bodily sensations, if you go from like zero to 100 in terms of anger or frustration, and it just blows right through the bodily sensations, you haven't yet established this enlightenment factor of mindfulness yet. And that's just where you are in your practice. And knowing that is really helpful, that you haven't yet established and brought to fulfillment the development of right mindfulness. Or here we're talking about it as the enlightenment factor of mindfulness. These are the same things, but he's just talking about it as an enlightenment factor, where on the Eightfold Path, he talks about it as right mindfulness. So he's sharing here that once you can observe the bodily sensations and do that on a regular, ongoing, consistent basis, now you know that you fully have developed mindfulness in the mind. This enlightenment factor of mindfulness, and we also refer to it as right mindfulness. So now he says, residing thus mindfully, he penetrates that teaching with wisdom, examines it, makes an investigation of it, Whenever, monks, a monk residing thus mindfully penetrates that teaching with wisdom, examines it, makes an investigation of it, on that occasion, the enlightenment factor of investigation is aroused by the monk. On that occasion, the monk develops the enlightenment factor of investigation. On that occasion, the enlightenment factor of investigation goes to fulfillment by development in that monk. So here... One of the factors of enlightenment, in order to get to enlightenment, a practitioner needs to investigate the teachings. 
not just about right mindfulness, but about the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, the three poisons, the natural law of gamma, all of these different teachings that the Buddha teaches, a practitioner would need to deeply dive in, examine them, not believe them, but examine them and be able to see the wisdom, independently verify the teachings. These books that I share, these classes that I share, the personal guidance that I share, everything else is just guidance. But it's up to the individual practitioner to go off and practice this enlightenment factor of investigation, examining the teachings and deeply diving in to be able to see the truth for themselves. And as somebody's doing that and choosing to do that regularly on a consistent basis, the Buddha is saying, okay, you've now developed that enlightenment factor of investigation. It's come to fulfillment. It's come to development. Not that you just dabble in the teachings every once in a while, but you deeply penetrate them with wisdom. While he penetrates that teaching with wisdom, examines it, makes an investigation of it, his energy is aroused without slackening. Whenever monks, a monk's energy is aroused without slackening, as he penetrates that teaching with wisdom, examines it, makes an investigation of it, on that occasion, the enlightenment factor of energy is aroused by the monk. On that occasion, the monk develops the enlightenment factor of energy. On that occasion, the enlightenment factor of energy goes to fulfillment by development in that monk. So this enlightenment factor of energy is having the enthusiasm and the willingness to do something. So you need this arousing of this enlightenment factor of energy rather than being complacent or lazy. We would need to arouse this enlightenment factor of energy to investigate the teachings. But also, we need this enlightenment factor of energy to take care of our daily tasks too. We need to take care of this body. We need to take care of our house. We need to take care of our transportation, our work. If we have children, we might have to take care of them. We have all these needs and things that we need to take care of. So arousing this enlightenment factor of energy where the mind is no longer complacent or lazy this is part of the path to enlightenment and directing that energy towards our daily activities, but also towards the investigation of the teachings. And as we do that, now the next factor of enlightenment, when his energy is aroused, this arises in him joy. Whenever monks, joy arises in a monk whose vitality is aroused. On that occasion, the enlightenment factor of joy is aroused by the monk. On that occasion, the monk develops the enlightenment factor of joy. On that occasion, the enlightenment factor of joy goes to fulfillment by development in that monk. So this enlightenment factor of joy is having joy not based on any particular condition. This conditioned happiness that the unenlightened mind experiences, that's not what an enlightened being experiences. They're not going to base their inner feelings of happiness on some condition. Instead, the mind is going to move to this unconditioned joy because of the investigation of the teachings, because applying energy into our daily activities, training the mind to eradicate this pollution, then the mind can experience this unconditioned joy because we're now actively applying effort and energy towards training the mind and the mind will move into this enlightenment factor of joy. For one whose mind is uplifted by joy, the body becomes tranquil and the mind becomes tranquil. 
Whenever monks, the body becomes tranquil and the mind becomes tranquil in a monk whose mind is uplifted by joy. On that occasion, the enlightenment factor of tranquility is aroused by the monk. On that occasion, the monk develops the enlightenment factor of tranquility. On that occasion, the enlightenment factor of tranquility goes to fulfillment by development in the monk. So when the mind is joyful, the body becomes tranquil. It becomes very calm. It becomes very light. If you've ever felt like you've been carrying a ton of bricks around on your legs or on your shoulders in a given day, this is the burden of carrying craving, desire, attachment. But when you train the mind to let go of craving, desire, attachment, then all of these enlightenment factors can come to fulfillment. And one of the things that you will see is that as the mind becomes less polluted, then the body becomes tranquil. You won't experience the aches and pains to the significant degree that you experience them in the unenlightened state, that the mind will be calm, so the body will be calm, or the, the mind will be tranquil, so the body will be tranquil. For one whose body is tranquil and who is joyful, the mind becomes concentrated. Whenever monks, the mind becomes concentrated in a monk whose body is tranquil and who is joyful. On that occasion, the enlightenment factor of concentration is aroused by the monk. On that occasion, the monk develops the enlightenment factor of concentration. On that occasion, the enlightenment factor of concentration goes to fulfillment by development in the monk. So concentration is having singleness of mind, being able to focus on one thing, having clear comprehension, having clarity of mind. So as you're working through these various enlightenment factors, eventually you get to develop more and more right concentration where in your daily life, not just in meditation, but in daily life, you're focusing on just one thing at a time. So you train the mind that way in meditation to just focus on the breath and be content and peaceful just focusing on the breath. But then you carry that with you in daily life by training the mind to just do one thing at a time, having singleness of mind. And then this enlightenment factor of concentration can come to full development. He becomes one who closely looks on with equanimity at the mind thus concentrated. Whenever monks, a monk becomes one who closely looks on with equanimity at the mind thus concentrated, one thus concentrated, on that occasion, the enlightenment factor of equanimity is aroused by the monk. On that occasion, the monk develops the enlightenment factor of equanimity. On that occasion, the enlightenment factor of equanimity goes to fulfillment by development in the monk. So here, the last enlightenment factor is equanimity. This is the calmness, composure, the evenness of temper, even in difficult situations. So by practicing all those other factors of enlightenment, then this enlightenment factor of equanimity can come to full development where the mind is fully concentrated. And of course, someone would need to go through all those beginning teachings of the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, all those other things that we teach in the group learning program. But more and more, you start bringing in these other qualities that the Buddha is teaching. So now the Buddha says, whenever monks, a monk resides reflecting on feelings and feelings, mind and mind, mental objects and mental objects. Because remember, he already talked about body as body prior to this. So he's focusing on the four foundations of mindfulness 
leading to the seven factors of enlightenment. On that occasion, unmuddled mindfulness is established in that monk. Whenever monks, unmuddled mindfulness has been established in a monk, on that occasion, the enlightenment factor of mindfulness is aroused by the monk. On that occasion, the monk develops the enlightenment factor of mindfulness. On that occasion, the enlightenment factor of mindfulness goes to fulfillment by development in the monk. So he talks about the other three foundations of mindfulness, fully elaborating on all of those. So we've just kind of truncated that. And then he finally finishes that up with the enlightenment factor of equanimity. It is monks, when the four foundations of mindfulness are developed and cultivated in this way, that they fulfill the seven factors of enlightenment. Any questions on this part? Yes, teacher. Let's go to Manal for Facebook and YouTube questions. Yes, we have a question on YouTube from David P. What is the reason for saying body in body and mind in mind? That's the way that the Buddha described it, but we know that body in body is being able to recognize the bodily sensations as the bodily sensations and understanding the feelings as the feelings, understanding the condition of the mind as the condition of the mind and understanding the mental objects as the mental objects. That's what he's essentially saying there. I have a question from Amina on Facebook. She asks, when we read these Pauli canon books, when the book specifically addresses monks as householders, we can receive the same benefits and take the guidance even if we are not monks, correct? Yes, you can read that monks as students. So, you know, whenever students, a student resides reflecting on the body and the body. So rather than the Buddha addressing every single type of person that he had in his community, he was oftentimes talking to the ordained practitioners because those were the ones who were around him the most. But there was about once every seven to eight days, there was a big, large congregation where the household practitioners would come in too. But all the other times during the week, he would be teaching the monks. So the vast majority of his teachings are using this term monks, but you can replace that with students. You can think students. Those are all the questions on social media. All right. So now we move on to this one. Seven factors of enlightenment fulfill true wisdom and liberation. That true wisdom is the ninth step on the tenfold path. And liberation is the tenth step on the tenfold path. So we learn the eightfold path and there's very specific teachings that we practice in order to train the mind on the eightfold path. But an enlightened being is going to be practicing the tenfold path. There's nothing to teach you in terms of what is the ninth factor, or what is the tenth factor. They're described in chapter five of volume one. But you know how with right speech, there's like the five factors of well-spoken speech or like with right effort, there's the four aspects of right effort. Well, with right wisdom and right liberation, there isn't like the four aspects of right wisdom or the five factors of right liberation. What wisdom is or what right wisdom is as part of the tenfold path is being able to easily describe the teachings, having ease and 
comprehension and the clarity of the words and phrases, being able to clearly, concisely, and precisely explain the teachings through your own personal wisdom, your own personal experiences. So someone who's practicing right wisdom will already be practicing all the teachings of the Buddha and they will be enlightened. Someone who's practicing right liberation, it's not like there's anything extra you need to do, but by learning, reflecting, and practicing the Eightfold Path and all the other teachings, the mind will be experiencing this right liberation where the mind will no longer be experiencing discontentedness at all. So these two extra factors, factors nine and 10 on the tenfold path, they're not teachings that you learn and then go off and practice. It's actually the results or the benefits of having practiced all the other teachings. And someone who's enlightened will be practicing right wisdom and they'll be experiencing right liberation. Their mind will no longer be experiencing any discontentedness whatsoever. So here, the Buddha is saying the seven factors of enlightenment fulfill right wisdom and right liberation. This is what's going to lead to enlightenment. How, monks, are the seven factors of enlightenment developed and cultivated so that they fulfill true wisdom and liberation? Here, monks, a monk develops the enlightenment factor of mindfulness, which is based on seclusion, freedom from strong feelings, and elimination, maturing and release. Okay, let me just explain this before we go into the other phrases. So he's going to go through and he's going to mention each individual factor of enlightenment, mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, equanimity. And he's going to follow that up with, which is based on seclusion. What seclusion is, is during the lifetime of the Buddha, Monks and ordained practitioners would go off in the forest and they would essentially live by themselves in isolation for extended periods of time. And what you need to do as part of your practice is spend time alone. Be comfortable with that. Go off to the mall alone. Take yourself out to the movies alone. Go out to dinner alone. Go eat at a nice restaurant alone. Go for a walk in the park alone. You don't have to go for these extended periods, you know, months and months at a time, the way they did during the lifetime of the Buddha. But you need to find time to spend time alone. Because as long as you have people around you, as long as you have stimulus like music going into the mind all the time, as long as you're bombarded with different stimulus around you, you're not going to be able to observe your own thoughts and have awareness of those thoughts and process them. So be sure that you're regularly finding time alone, weekly, that you're spending time alone at different times of your day and different times of your week. So by developing these seven factors of enlightenment, the Buddha says what you're going to experience is this freedom from strong feelings. Those strong feelings are the discontentedness, that happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria, those pleasant feelings those conditioned pleasant feelings, that conditioned painful feelings, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear. You're going to have freedom from those strong feelings. And same thing with the feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, maybe like shyness or displeasure or uncomfortableness, right? And then the Buddha talks about and elimination. So you're going to have freedom from these feelings and those feelings will be eliminated. And then he says, maturing and release. 
what maturing and release is, is as you're practicing all these teachings and the Eightfold Path and your meditation and you're developing your mind more and more, you may get to a point where you feel certain cravings release from the mind. You can literally feel it. If you have mindfulness and awareness of bodily sensations, you can literally feel some of these cravings, some of these fetters. You can actually literally feel them release in the mind and release from the sensations in the body. You'll feel it actually release out of the mind and out of the body. So that's what he's talking about here is that putting all these teachings together, it will mature in release, that you will feel these cravings release from the body and from the mind. And he goes through each individual factor here, the factor of investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, equanimity. And then lastly, he says, it is monks when the seven factors of enlightenment are developed and cultivated in this way that they fulfill true wisdom and liberation. So he's taking you all the way from just practicing breathing mindfulness meditation down to the four foundations of mindfulness, down to the seven factors of enlightenment, helping you to see how that leads to having this direct experience of developing wisdom and acquiring wisdom, which leads to liberation in the mind being free from this discontentedness and having eliminated discontentedness from the mind. What questions do you guys have on this? My dad has a question, let's go here. Hi, Teacher David. Um, in development of concentration, how would a practitioner understand better that they are, in fact, removing a craving and displeasure at the root versus just laying it to the side and not effectively cutting the thought out at the root? I would like to observe this better for myself. Sure. So when you're noticing, when you get to that point where you're noticing with mindfulness, the bodily sensations before the feelings come, because this is being produced by craving. If there's craving, desire, attachment in the mind, it's going to produce these bodily sensations and it's going to uh, arise certain feelings in the mind unless you cut that off. So if you can cut it off at the bodily sensations, then you know, okay, I'm observing it when it's just a bodily sensation and I'm cutting it back and cutting it back and cutting it back. That's getting to the root. If you allow it to come into feelings, which it's going to happen, you know, until you get closer to enlightenment. But if you allow it to come into feelings or affect the condition of the mind, it's further along in the life cycle of this arising discontentedness. So if you can catch it when it's just these bodily sensations like heat or sharp pains or you know, tickling coming up. If you're cutting it off there at the bodily sensations, you're getting back to the root. And then you should be able to get to the point where as you feel the bodily sensations arising and you know what comes next is the feelings, you should be able to cut it off at the bodily sensations and the feelings never come into the mind. So you might feel anger starting to arise, but you can cut it off as bodily sensations and it never becomes a feeling. And it's like, oh my goodness, that was so amazing. I just completely circumvented anger and frustration by being aware of the bodily sensations and cutting it off there. And as you do that more and more on that topic, eventually you'll get to the point where that particular craving, desire, attachment doesn't exist any longer. And that same exact experience can happen to you 
and you don't feel anything. You don't even feel bodily sensations anymore. Where in the past, that same situation, you didn't notice the bodily sensations. It went right into feelings. It affected you for a week or two or many days or many hours, and it just disturbed the mind. But now you cut it back and cut it back and cut it back to the point where you observe it as bodily sensations. And now you uproot it and you cut it out where the craving desire attachment is no longer in the mind. And that same exact experience can happen. And wow, I don't feel anything at all. There's not even bodily sensations that arise. Not only did the anger not arise, not only am I not annoyed, but I didn't even feel any bodily sensations with that. And that's how you know that that particular craving is most likely eliminated and you've cut it all the way back to the root and you've uprooted it. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. No more questions, Fincher. All right, so we go on to chapter 12. The suitable way for attaining Nibbana, enlightenment, first discourse. Monks, I will teach you the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana, enlightenment. Listen to that and attend closely. I will speak. And what, monks, is the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana, enlightenment? Here, a monk sees the eye as impermanent. He sees forms as impermanent. He sees eye consciousness as impermanent. He sees eye contact as impermanent. He sees as impermanent whatever feeling arises with the eye contact as a condition, whether pleasant or painful or neither painful nor pleasant. He sees the ear as impermanent. He sees sounds as impermanent. He sees ear consciousness as impermanent. He sees ear, ear contact as impermanent. He sees as impermanent whatever feeling arises with ear contact as condition, whether pleasant or painful or neither painful nor pleasant. He sees the nose as impermanent. He sees odors as impermanent. He sees nose con consciousness as impermanent. He sees nose contact as impermanent. He sees as impermanent whatever feeling arises with nose contact as condition, whether pleasant or painful or neither painful nor pleasant. He sees the tongue as impermanent. He sees flavors as impermanent. He sees tongue consciousness as impermanent. He sees tongue contact as impermanent. He sees as impermanent whatever feeling arises with tongue contact as condition whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant. He sees the body as impermanent. He sees physical objects as impermanent. He sees body consciousness as impermanent. He sees body contact as impermanent. He sees as impermanent whatever feeling arises with body contact as condition, whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant. He sees the mind as impermanent. He sees mental objects as impermanent. He sees mind consciousness as impermanent. He sees mind contact as impermanent. He sees as impermanent whatever feeling arises with mind contact as condition, whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant. This monks is a way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana, enlightenment. All right. Thank you, Basim. So here, the Buddha is talking about these conditioned pleasant feelings conditioned painful feelings and conditioned neither painful nor pleasant feelings. These are the discontent feelings that he's talking about. And what he's sharing is that this discontentedness is going to arise through contact and consciousness. So there's these internal sense bases, 
these six internal sense bases, which are the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body itself, and then the mind. These are six internal sense bases. And then there's the six external sense bases, which are forms that the eyes see, there's sounds that the ears hear, there's odors that the nose smells, there's flavors that the tongue tastes, there's physical objects that touches the body, and then there's mental objects that are in the mind. So these are the internal and external sense bases. And the Buddha is saying that you need to see these as impermanent, that the eyes themselves are not permanent, the ears are not permanent. The things that we see, the forms we see are not permanent. The things that we hear are not permanent. And by understanding these things aren't permanent, then the mind will have less of a tendency to cling to them and hold on to them. So when we see something with the eye and the mind becomes discontent, either pleasant feelings, painful feelings, or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, when the mind experiences pleasant feelings because of something that we see, now the mind clings to it and wants to hold on to those pleasant feelings. But they're not permanent. So that's why when now they change, that's when the painful feelings come in because the mind wants them to be permanent, pleasant feelings, but it can't happen that way. So we need to let go and realize that everything that we experience through these six sense bases is impermanent. That's the first part that the Buddha is talking about here. Then he's talking about this eye consciousness, nose consciousness, ear consciousness, and so forth. This consciousness that he's talking about here is awareness. So once the eye sees a physical form and the mind becomes aware of it, that's now eye consciousness. The mind is now aware of what it's seeing through the eye. And now we have what's called eye contact. So we need these three things in order to get to eye contact. We need the internal sense base, which in this case is the eye. We need the external sense base, which in this case is the form. Then we need eye consciousness, which is awareness of that form through the eyes. Now, once we have awareness in the mind, aha, now we've got eye contact. So it's those three things that create eye contact. And the mind needs to deeply understand that all of these things are impermanent. Therefore, don't try to hold on and cling to any of it. Because as long as you try to cling to anything that's coming through these six sense bases, you're going to experience discontentedness. Because the Buddha says here, he sees as impermanent whatever feeling arises when there's eye contact. So when you see something through the eyes, you need to know that as a conditioned object, that is impermanent. Whether you experience pleasant feelings, painful feelings, or neither painful nor pleasant, it is an impermanent feeling. So if you train the mind to not cling and hold on wanting permanence, that's where you can get to true liberation. That's why the Buddha calls this the suitable way for attaining Nibbana, because you have to be able to see this clearer and clearer and clearer. And he goes through all the six sense bases here, helping you to be able to see that. Any questions on this? No question, teacher. All right. 
Chapter 13, this is another discourse along these same lines. So that first one that we were just looking at, that's the universal truth of impermanence, that very first universal truth. Well, let's go to Manel for this chapter. Suitable way for attaining Nibbana, enlightenment, second discourse. Monks, I will teach you the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana, enlightenment. Listen to that and attend, closely I will speak. And what monks is the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana? Here, a monk sees the eye as discontentedness. He sees form as discontentedness. He sees eye consciousness as discontentedness. He sees feeling arises with eye contact as condition, whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant. He sees the ear as discontentedness. He sees sounds as discontentedness. He sees ear consciousness as discontentedness. He sees ear contact as discontentedness. He sees discontentedness, whatever feeling arises with ear contact as condition, whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant. He sees the nose as discontentedness. He sees odors as discontentedness. He sees nose consciousness as discontentedness. He sees nose contact as discontentedness. He sees as discontentedness, whatever feeling arises with nose contact as condition, whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant. He sees the tongue as discontentedness. He sees flavors as discontentedness. He sees tongue consciousness as discontentedness. He sees tongue contact as discontentedness. He sees as discontentedness, whatever feeling arises with tongue contact as condition, whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant. He sees the body as discontentedness. He sees physical objects as discontentedness. He sees body consciousness as discontentedness. He sees body contact as discontentedness. He sees as discontentedness, whatever feeling arises with body contact as condition, whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant. He sees the mind as discontentedness. He sees mental objects as discontentedness. He sees mind consciousness as discontentedness. He sees mind contact as discontentedness. He sees as discontentedness, whatever feeling arises with mind contact as condition, whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant. This must is the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana. All right, thank you, Manal. So here, this is the second universal truth that we talk about in volume one and in the group learning program. He's talking about how these conditioned feelings are discontentedness and that someone who's going to attain enlightenment needs to be able to see that very clearly, that any conditioned feeling that is being experienced is discontentedness and essentially get to the point where you have, he didn't say this here, but he says it in other places, but essentially get to the point where you're disinterested in this discontentedness because what the unenlightened mind does is it wants to chase after the objects of its affection and it craves, it yearns, it longs through these six sense spaces and it's chasing after the objects of its affection and it thinks that if it just chases after these different conditions that it can get these pleasant feelings and hold on to them but those feelings aren't permanent and it just ends up experiencing painful feelings later. So as you experience this, you don't believe it, but you see the truth in it that as long as the mind is experiencing these conditioned feelings and it chases after these 
pleasant feelings through these six sense bases, it's going to experience these discontent feelings. And you need to get to the point where you're disinterested in that. And you just see that chasing after the objects of your affection is just going to ultimately lead to dissatisfaction and displeasure. So ultimately, the mind has to submit and give in and just decide, I'm not going to chase that anymore. That's not something that I'm interested in doing because it's just going to lead to displeasure and dissatisfaction. What questions do you guys have on this? No questions, time to All right, so that was the second universal truth. That's what the way for attaining Nibbana and I mean the third discourse. Monks, I will teach you the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana and enlightenment. Listen to that and attend closely. I will speak. And what, monks, is the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana and enlightenment? Here, a monk sees the eye as non-self. He sees forms as non-self. He sees eye consciousness as non-self. He sees eye contact as non-self. He sees as non-self whatever feeling arises with eye contact as condition whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant. He sees the ear as non-self. He sees sounds as non-self. He sees ear consciousness as non-self. He sees ear contact as non-self. He sees as non-self whatever feeling arises with ear contact as condition, whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant. He sees the nose as non-self. He sees odors as non-self. He sees nose consciousness as non-self. He sees nose contact as non-self. He sees as non-self whatever feeling arises with nose contact as condition, whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant. He sees the tongue as non-self. He sees flavors as non-self. He sees tongue consciousness as non-self. He sees tongue contact as non-self. He sees as non-self whatever feeling arises with with tongue contact as condition whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant. He sees the body as non-self. He sees physical objects as non-self. He sees body consciousness as non-self. He sees body contact as non-self. He sees as non-self whatever feeling arises with body contact as condition, whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant. He sees the mind as non-self. He sees mental objects as non-self. He sees mind consciousness as non-self. He sees mind contact as non-self. He sees as non-self whatever feeling arises with mind contact as condition, whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant. This monks is a way that is set up in Nibbana, enlightenment. All right. Thank you, Basum. So here, that third universal truth of non-self. The universal truth of non-self is that there is no permanent self here. This self-image and self-identity that the mind holds on to only causes it to continue to struggle and have difficulties in the world. So what the Buddha is saying here is that this I is not you. It's not who you are as a person. These physical forms that you see in the world, that's not you. That's not who you are as a person. This house that you have, this car that you have, these clothes that you have, that's not you who you are. The awareness of these different things that are coming through the six sense bases, that's not who you are. This contact that you have with all these different things, that's not who you are. These feelings that arise, whether they're pleasant, painful, or neither painful nor pleasant, that's not who you are as a person. 
those are the eye, the form, the eye consciousness, that's the eye contact, that's the feelings that arise, but none of that stuff is you, who you are as a person. So the more you understand that these things aren't you and who you are, then you can disassociate with them rather than trying to hold on to them so tightly. Sure, you're gonna still need things in your life. You're probably gonna need a house. You're probably gonna need transportation and clothing and things like this. But you have to be sure that you don't see that that's who you are as a person. Because if you like to wear red shirts every day and you hear somebody talk negatively about people who wear red shirts, for example, your mind's gonna be shaken up and it's gonna be discontent if you identify that red shirt as being who you are as a person. Or if you have a certain color of hair, or if you have a certain self-identity that you identify as being a mom or a dad, or you identify as being a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant or someone who works in IT or something like this. If you hear somebody say or you hear on the news or you read in a paper somebody trashing somebody with your same profession then you're going to take offense to it and you're going to be angry because you think that's who you are as a person and what the buddhist teaching is part of non-self is realizing that none of this stuff is you or who you are so that the mind can let go of it not holding on to it tightly you still are do these things you still will have these certain objects in your life, you will still have a certain profession, but just don't see that as who you are as a person, that there's just this physical body and this mind that has come together for this existence, but this isn't who you are as a person. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? When the Buddha uses the word self, does he necessarily mean ego, conceit, and the self-identity and self-image? The word that we use as ego didn't exist during the lifetime of the Buddha. So what we call the ego is actually talked about in the Buddhist teachings as two separate things. And it actually really helps a practitioner to understand them as two separate things because they function very differently. And the way that you're going to approach to eliminate these from the mind have two different approaches. So there's this first fetter of personal existence view where the mind falsely, mistakenly believes that this self-image and this self-identity is who you are as a person. That's the personal existence view. That's part of what we call the ego. And then there's this eighth fetter, which is called conceit. This is the arrogance, the pride, the measuring and comparing people as being above you or below you. This is the conceit. This is typically what a lot of people think ego is, is that arrogance, that pride. Yes, that's part of the ego too. But there's this other part, this personal existence view that we oftentimes don't think about until we get onto this path and we start learning about it because we don't really think of it because in the unenlightened state, we think that we are this body. If somebody asks, like, where's Bossum? You might point to here, or you might point to here. Or if somebody talks negatively about your profession, or about where you live, or the country that you live in, that you're Egyptian, for example. If you heard somebody talking negatively about Egyptian people, you might take offense to it. If you identify with, I am Egyptian, so this is where the Buddha says 
eliminating the conceit of I am, right? So you have to eliminate that conceit, that arrogance, that holding on of I am an Egyptian. I am a male. I am a teacher. I am this. I am that. Of course, you fulfill those roles in society. That's the things that you do in society. But the Buddha is teaching you as part of non-self that none of these things is who you are as a person. And when you can train the mind to let go of those things, then the mind can be at ease and it can be peaceful. The mind won't be shaken up when you hear somebody talk negatively about Egyptians, for example. Yeah, thanks, Tisha. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. So those things are both part of the ego, the personal existence view and the conceit, both of those. That's what we call the ego. So here, this is chapter 15. Do you have somebody for this one, Bossom? Yeah, I think I would read it here, sure. Okay, I would just preface this with saying what the Buddha is going to do here is he's going to combine the ones that we were just talking about, the three prior discourses. He's going to combine them in this one iteration here, this one discussion. Well, the sort of a way for attaining Nibbana, I'd like to make the fourth discourse. Monks, I will teach you the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana, enlightenment. Listen to that and attend closely. I will speak. What do you think, monks? Is the eye permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, Venerable Seer. Is what is impermanent, discontentedness or contentedness? Discontentedness, Venerable Seer. Is what impermanent, discontentedness, and subject to change, fit to be regarded thus, this is mine, this I am, this is myself? No, Venerable Seer. Are forms permanent or impermanent? Is I consciousness permanent or impermanent? Is I contact permanent or impermanent? Is any feeling that arises with I contact as condition, whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant, permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, Venable Seer. Is the ear permanent or impermanent? Is the nose permanent or impermanent? Is the tongue permanent or impermanent? Is the body permanent or impermanent? Is the mind permanent or impermanent? Is any feeling that arises with ear contact, nose contact, tongue contact, body contact, mind contact, as condition, permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, Venerable Seer. Is what is impermanent, discontentedness or contentedness? Discontentedness, Venerable Seer. Is what is impermanent, discontentedness, and subject to change, fit to be regarded thus, this is mine, this I am, this is my self, no, Venerable Seer. Seeing thus, monks, the instructed noble disciple experiences a fading away of strong feelings towards the I, towards forms, a fading away of strong feelings towards I consciousness, a fading away of strong feelings towards I contact, a fading away of strong feelings towards whatever feeling arises with I contact as condition whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant. Experiences a fading away of strong feelings towards the ears, towards the nose, towards the tongue, towards the body, towards the mind, towards whatever feeling arises with mind contact as condition, whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant. Experiencing a fading away of strong feelings 
he becomes free from strong feelings. Through freedom from strong feelings, his mind is liberated. When it is liberated, there comes a knowledge it's liberated. He understands, destroyed his birth. The whole life has been lived. What had to be done has been done. There is no more of this state of existence. This month is a way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana, enlightenment. Okay, thank you, Basum. So what I suggest you guys do as you're reading something like this in all the Buddhist teachings is that rather than just reading it and being like, oh, that's nice, actually go through as if the Buddha is talking to you. So when he says here, what do you think, monks? Is the I permanent or impermanent? If I was you, I would pause there and answer the question. Of course, the answer here is the correct answer. But you're not interested in just learning what the correct answer is. You need to deeply be able to see this for yourself. So rather than just read through this like a novel or a storybook and just be like, oh, that's nice. Yeah, the eyes impermanent, vulnerable, sir. Instead, pause at that moment as if the Buddha is actually asking you the question. So Manal, is the eye permanent or impermanent? Or Amina or David, you know, or Miranda, is the eye permanent or impermanent? When you're reading this, think as if the Buddha is speaking directly to you. And if you're not seeing that the eye is impermanent, then that's where you would like to investigate this further, examine it, maybe reach out to your teacher for help. And then the same thing when he asks is what is impermanent discontentedness or contentedness? Rather than just reading this as like, oh, that's nice. They answered the question and that's the correct answer. That's not going to get you to liberation. You've actually got to be able to see that not only did the Buddha and his students discuss this and they give the correct answer, but you've got to be able to see the correct answer very clearly, not just knowing the intellectually the correct answer, but you have to be able to see it yourself. So imagine that the Buddha is asking you this question. And if you don't know the answer and you don't feel like you fully understand the answer is discontentedness, then you've got to penetrate that and examine that further. And then this next question is what is impermanent discontentedness and subject to change fit to be regarded as this is mine, this I am, this is myself. So is anything that you see that is impermanent that creates this discontentedness when the mind clings to it and it's constantly changing, is this who you are as a person? Is this the self? Anything that you see with the eyes, is this the self? That's what the Buddha is asking his students here. So when you're being asked this question by the Buddha, be sure that you look at it and that you imagine like the Buddha is asking you this question so that you can penetrate it and deeply understand it. And that's all of these questions here, because that's how you're going to get to actual wisdom in the Buddhist teachings. Down here, you can see where the Buddha talks about once you start understanding this and you start penetrating it with wisdom, this is where you'll experience a fading away of strong feelings. Because once the mind deeply understands and sees the wisdom that, yes, these things are all impermanent, by clinging to them, it's going to lead to discontentedness. And none of these things are the self. And the more that you understand that more and more, you'll experience this fading away of strong feelings, that diminishing 
of discontentedness that I talk about. The mind's not enlightened yet, where they're completely eliminated, but there's this diminishing of discontentedness that occurs first. The Buddha describes it as experiencing the fading away of strong feelings. He becomes free from strong feelings. That's once the mind is enlightened, right? Once it's enlightened, the mind becomes completely free from strong feelings. Through freedom from strong feelings, his mind is liberated. That's the enlightenment, when the mind is free of these strong feelings. When it is liberated, there comes the knowledge, it's liberated. So an enlightened being knows that their mind is liberated. They know that they haven't experienced discontentedness for a year or two or three or however long it's been. They know that it's liberated. They're not going to go around and tell people that it, their mind's liberated. They're past that. They don't have arrogance. They don't have pride. They don't have a craving to go around and tell people, by the way, my mind's liberated. I no longer experience discontentedness. You're not going to see that in an enlightened being. So the Buddha is saying when it's liberated, when the mind is liberated, there comes the knowledge. Yeah, it's liberated. The enlightened being knows that. And then understanding that, then an enlightened being also knows that they're no longer going to be born again. They know that because they've experienced this diminishing and then this complete freedom from strong feelings. Their mind is experiencing that peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. So they're no longer going to be reborn again. Destroyed is birth. The holy life has been lived. They lived this life and they've liberated the mind. They've done what had to be done. There is no more for this state of existence. There's no more existence in the cycle of rebirth. This, monks, is the way suitable for attaining Nibbana or enlightenment. Questions on this one? Yes, teacher. When Gautama Buddha is showing that, uh, uh, asking that, uh, is what is impermanent discontentedness or contentedness? Does he means here that clinging to what is impermanent is discontentedness or the object itself is discontentedness? Clinging to it is discontentedness. That's what's going to arise, discontentedness. Well, thanks, Sisha. No more question. Yep. All right, so we go to chapter 16. Yes, Manal is the next volunteer. Dispelling the contact. Monks, consciousness comes to be based on two things. And how, monks, does consciousness come to be based on two things? Consciousness is based on the I and forms. There arises I consciousness, the I is impermanent, changing, becoming, otherwise. Forms are impermanent, changing, becoming, otherwise. Thus, these two things are moving and fluctuating, impermanent, changing, becoming, otherwise. I consciousness is impermanent, changing, becoming, otherwise. The cause and condition for the arising of I consciousness is also impermanent, changing, becoming, otherwise. When Mang's I consciousness has arisen based on a condition that is impermanent, how could it be permanent? The meeting, the encounter, the combining of these three things is called eye contact. Eye contact, too, is impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. The cause and condition for the arising of eye contact is also impermanent, changing and becoming otherwise. When monk's eye contact has arisen based on a condition that is impermanent, how could it be permanent? Contacted, monks, one feels. Contacted, one craves. Contacted, one perceives. Thus, these things, too, are moving and fluctuating, impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. 
similar discourses were cited in the case of ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, body consciousness, and mind consciousness. In dependence on the ear and sounds, there arises ear con consciousness. In dependence on the nose and odors, these arises nose consciousness. In dependence on the tongue and flavors, these arises tongue consciousness. It depend if independence on the body and physical objects, there arises body consciousness. Independence on the mind and mental objects, there arises mind consciousness. The ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind are impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. Mental objects are impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. Thus, two things are moving and fluctuating, impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. Mind consciousness is impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. The cause and condition for the arising of mind consciousness is also impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. When monks, mind consciousness has arisen based on a condition that is impermanent, how could it be permanent? The meeting, the encounter, the combining of these three things is called mind contact. Mind contact too is impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. The cause and condition for the arising of mind contact is also impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. When monks, mind contact has arisen based on a condition that is impermanent, how could it be permanent? Contacted monks, one feels contacted, one craves, contacted, one perceives. Thus, these the two are moving and fluctuating, impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. It isn't in such a way, monks, that consciousness comes to be based on two things. Okay, thank you, Manal. So here, we've been talking about this throughout the class today. First, the Buddha is talking about, you know, how does consciousness become based on two things? Well, the two things that the Buddha is talking about, that consciousness or this awareness is based on is the internal sense base and the external sense base. We've already talked about that. And he's saying, okay, that's what eye consciousness is, and it's impermanent, right? And he kind of goes through and discusses that a bit. And then he discusses each of the six sense spaces helping to ensure that his students know that all of these things are impermanent that we're experiencing through these six sense spaces and he also talks about how these things are moving and constantly changing and you know they're not permanent they're not fixed so this is something that a person needs to be able to see and then he talks here also about how the combining of these things the i the form, the consciousness is the contact. So when you think about contact, because if you study the natural law of gamma, of cause and effect, what you understand is that you can't create gamma unless there's contact. There has to be contact in order to create either wholesome gamma or unwholesome gamma. So for example, if you've never had contact with the president of your country, you haven't created any gamma with the president of your country yet because you've never been in contact with them or your prime minister, right? There has to be contact with this individual in order for you to create either wholesome gamma or unwholesome gamma. So the Buddha is helping you to see that it takes the internal sense base, the external sense base, and the consciousness to become aware of that in order to have contact. And then if you understand what contact is, then you'll understand gamma, that in order to create gamma, there has to be contact. 
And this is where it can really help you. Whereas if you're, say, having contact with somebody and there's an argument or there's frustration that's arising or what have you, sometimes it's best to break contact. And that's going to eliminate any further wholesome or unwholesome comma from being created if you break contact and you just move away from the conversation, for example. So here the Buddha is just explaining the same things we've been talking about in a different way. And I'm adding this piece in here to help you understand that it's contact, which is the condition that creates gamma. And then if you understand that unwholesome gamma is created by craving anger and ignorance, and wholesome gamma is created by generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. But you still need contact in order to create any kind of gamma. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? A question on this temperature. All right, we'll move on to the next one. And by the way, here's something that I added just today to the explanation to be able to help you see the internal sense base, the external sense base, which leads to consciousness. And now that equals contact through the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind. So it's these three things coming together that creates contact. All right, chapter 17. Direct, no, direct development of the Noble Eightfold Path. Monks, when one knows and sees the eye as it actually is, when one knows and sees the forms as they actually are, when one knows and sees eye consciousness as it actually is, when one knows and sees eye contact as it actually is, when one knows and sees as it actually is, the feeling felt as pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant, that arises with eye contact as condition. Then one is not inflamed by craving for the eye, for, for forms, for eye consciousness, for eye contact, for the feeling felt as pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant, that arises with eye contact as condition. When one resides uninflamed by craving, unfettered, unobsessed, reflecting on danger, then the five aggregates affected by clinging are diminished for one in the future. And one's craving, which brings renewal of existence, is accompanied by excitement and desire. And excitement in this or that are abandoned. One's bodily and mental troubles are abandoned. One's bodily and mental torments are abandoned. One's bodily and mental fevers are abandoned. And one experiences bodily and mental peacefulness. The view of a person such as this is right view. His intentions is right intention. His effort is right effort. His mindfulness is right mindfulness. His concentration is right concentration. But his bodily action, his verbal speech, and his livelihood have already been well purified earlier. Thus, this noble eightfold path comes to fulfillment in him by development. When he develops this noble eightfold path, the four foundations of mindfulness also come to fulfillment in him by development, body, feeling, mind, mental objects. The four right kinds of striving also come to fulfillment in him by developing right effort. The four bases for spirit 
spiritual power also come to fulfillment in him by development, also known as mental power, initiative, energy, mind, investigation. The five sense spaces also come to fulfillment in him by development, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body. The five powers also come to fulfillment in him by development, confidence, energy, mindfulness, concentration, wisdom. The seven factors of enlightenment also come to fulfillment in him by development, mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, equanimity. These two things, serenity and insight, occur in him combined evenly together. He fully understands by direct knowledge experience those things that should be fully understood by direct knowledge experience. He abandons by direct knowledge experience those things that should be abandoned by direct knowledge experience. He develops by direct knowledge experience those things that should be developed by direct knowledge experience. He realizes by direct knowledge experience those things that should be realized by direct knowledge experience. When one knows and sees the ear as it actually is, when one knows and sees the nose as it actually is, when one knows and sees the tongue as it actually is, when one knows and sees the body as it actually is, when one knows and sees the mind as it actually is, these are the things that should be realized by direct knowledge experience. Okay, thanks, Bassam. Here the Buddha is combining a lot of things and helping you to understand how the Eightfold Path can come to complete development. And he's saying, okay, you know, once somebody's already purified their moral conduct, which he says down here, I'm going to kind of talk about it in a little bit different way. So once they've purified their moral conduct, this is right action, right speech, and right livelihood. He's putting it a little bit out of order. You know, it's right speech, right action, and right livelihood. He's saying, okay, once somebody's already purified these and they understand the things that we just talked about in terms of the eye and the form, the eye consciousness and eye contact, then the mind is no longer going to be interested in craving through these six sense bases because the mind understands that this discontentedness that arises based on this condition of contact, the mind is no longer interested in it. So not inflamed by craving, right? When you start understanding the impermanent nature of all of these things, when you start understanding that clinging to it just leads to discontentedness, when you understand that none of this stuff is you, you can't hold on to it, it just leads to displeasure, then the mind is no longer obsessed or inflamed by craving. That's what we were talking about earlier. So then when the mind is no longer inflamed, so when it's uninflamed by craving, unfettered, unobsessed, when the mind understands that there's danger, right? This danger, if I allow the mind to continue to obsess through these six sense bases, there's danger in that because it's just going to lead to painful feelings. And I'm not interested in those painful feelings. I'm disinterested in this discontentedness. Then the Buddha says, the five aggregates, those are form, feeling, perceptions, 
volitional formations in consciousness are no longer affected by clinging. So the mind no longer clings to these five aggregates. That's been diminishing, right? And now one understands that this craving is also being diminished as well. This craving is what leads to continuous rebirth. And then the Buddha is saying, okay, all of this stuff is diminishing and diminishing and diminishing. And what that leads to is one's bodily and mental troubles are abandoned because this is where you see the discontentedness diminishing. One's bodily and mental torments are abandoned, right? You no longer experience those strong feelings. One's bodily and mental fevers are abandoned. One experiences bodily and mental peacefulness. That's where the mind becomes very peaceful as it comes into enlightenment. And now the body is also very peaceful as well because it's no longer carrying that heavy burden of craving, desire, attachment. So now the Buddha says, all right, well, how does all this come about? Well, person has to have right view. Person has to have right intention. There has to be right effort. There has to be right mindfulness and right concentration. These are the things that bring about the change in the mind. And he's saying, okay, earlier on, there was this purification of the moral conduct because that's what he usually teaches first. He teaches cleaning up your moral conduct as the first step on the path. Yes, the right view needs to be there and it needs to be established, but he tries to help a practitioner to clean up their moral conduct first, which you get a lot of that through the five precepts. If you're practicing the five precepts really closely, you get a lot of that moral conduct that's been cleaned up but more specifically, it's right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And now with all of these things, with all these different factors of the path, including this understanding of craving, desire, attachment through the six sense bases, thus this noble eightfold path comes to fulfillment in him by development. So you understand that it's not just following rules or commandments or things like this. It's about truly training the mind to eliminate the craving, desire, attachment through these six sense bases and really developing each of these factors along the path and doing that more and more closely as you develop your practice. Then the Buddha is giving us you know, more guidance on these very detailed teachings. And I put in here to help you understand what he's talking about. So when he talks about the four foundations of mindfulness, you know, I'm the one who's added in what are the four foundations of mindfulness? Or when you're talking about the four right kinds of striving, that's right effort. That's what he's talking about there. The four aspects of right effort or the four bases of spiritual power also come to fulfillment. This is also known as mental power, which is having initiative, energy, the mind, and this investigation. These are just kind of a way to help you understand what he's talking about here, right? And then he just goes through all of these and eventually gets to the point to help you understand that it's through direct experience, right? You can't just intellectually learn the teachings. You have to examine them and you have to put them in practice to experience this. He calls it direct knowledge. And I just put this word in here, experience, to help you understand what he's talking about. Is This is where I talk about independent verification of the teachings that you need to learn them intellectually, reflect on them, and then practice them to see the truth for yourself 
through your own experience, through your own independent verification. And as you do that and you get this direct knowledge, this is what ultimately helps you to acquire wisdom and leads to liberation. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Let's go to Manel for Facebook questions. Samina has a question. When working with children, how can we best guide them to not attach to what they see with the eye senses? For example, our daughter prefers to eat fruit that has not yet turned brown, like a banana, even if we know that the taste is the same. We would like to guide her to not attach slowly over time. Yeah, it's a step-by-step process. It's helping her to see impermanence. It's helping her to also see you eating it, right? Like show her that it tastes good because her mind is, as you know, is conditioned to think that, oh, the banana's supposed to be white. When I see a brown banana, it must not be good. But what I teach is I say, oh, it's actually sweeter when it's brown. It actually has a sweeter taste. And maybe you eat a little bit and she eats a little bit. And it's going to take time, of course. It's not going to be just one sitting for her to be able to see that. And I think I didn't eat brown bananas until I got, you know, in my 20s or or so or 30s. So it might take her some time, but you can show her that you eat these brown bananas and they're just fine. And maybe she'll be more inclined to do that. Well, no more questions, teacher. All right. So let's go to the next one, chapter 18. Yes, uh, Manal is the next volunteer. No coming or going, no passing away or arising. And on that occasion, a perfectly enlightened one was instructing, urging, rousing, and encouraging the monk with discussion of the teachings concerned with liberation. The monks, receptive, attentive, focusing their entire awareness, lending ear, listened to the teachings. Then on realizing the significance of that, the perfectly enlightened one on that occasion exclaimed, one who is dependent has wavering, one who is independent has no wavering. There being no wavering, there is calm. There being calm, there is no yearning. There being no yearning, there is no coming or going. There being no coming or going, there is no passing away or arising. There being no passing away or arising, there is neither a here, nor a there, nor between the two. This, just this, is the end of stress. All right. Thank you, Manol. Here, when the Buddha is talking about the end of stress, he's saying the end of discontentedness, this discontent mind that unenlightened beings experience. He's saying this is how to progress towards that. And he's talking about it in very general terms here, of course. When he talks about one who is dependent has wavering, what he's talking about when he says dependent is he's talking about craving, desire, attachment. One who is dependent on craving, desire, attachment, the mind's going to waver. It's not going to quite know for sure that the mind is going to be shaken up. One who is independent, there is no wavering. So independent is one who has eliminated craving, desire, attachment. The mind isn't going to waver. It's going to be stable. It's going to be steady. It's not going to be shaken up. There's no wavering in an enlightened mind because an enlightened mind knows the truth. Nobody can shake you off of that truth once the mind independently verifies these teachings and sees the truth in the teachings. Having eliminated craving, desire, attachment and all the other pollutions of the mind, then that enlightened being is not going to have any wavering in their mind. They're going to be able to take in information, think over the decision. They're going to make their decision 
and then they know that's the right decision. They're not going to waver in their decisions, right? But someone who has craving, desire, attachment, the mind's kind of confused. It's kind of muddled. It doesn't have this clear comprehension. So there's going to be wavering in the mind. The mind's going to be shaken up. So when the mind's shaken up, it can't be calm. So here the Buddha is saying, there being no wavering. So when the mind's not shaken up, there is calm. There being calm, there is no yearning. So when the mind's calm, there's not this craving, desire, attachment. There's no yearning. As long as there's craving, desire, attachment in the mind, it's going to be able to be shaken up. So it can't be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, this enlightened mind, as long as there's yearning in the mind. There being no yearning, there is no coming and going. So as long as the mind has this yearning, this strong eagerness, this chasing after the objects of its affection, the mind is going to have this displeasure or where it's at. The mind can't be content and peaceful just where it's at. It's always going to feel like the grass is greener on the other side, and it's going to always be chasing after the objects of its affection. But when there's no craving, desire, attachment, when there's no yearning, there's no coming and going where the mind feels like it has to constantly be on the go. And this next object of its affection is going to somehow bring lasting satisfaction. An enlightened mind that has no yearning, no craving, desire, attachment, they're not going to be constantly on the go, 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 go. There's not this coming and going. There being no coming and going, there's no passing away and arising. So if the mind doesn't have this craving, desire, attachment, there's not this go, 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 this coming and going. There's not going to be these feelings that arise in the mind and then they pass away. These are those impermanent discontent feelings, these pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant because an enlightened mind isn't basing their inner feelings on some conditioned feeling. So an enlightened mind, the reason why it's stable and steady is because it's removed all this pollution. It's no longer experiencing this up and down and up and down and up and down this arising of discontentedness and this passing away of discontentedness. It's just always steady, stable, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. There being no passing away and arising of this discontentedness, there is neither a here nor there, nor a between the two. So this is where the Buddha is also saying that, you know, an enlightened mind can be content and peaceful where it's at. Where an unenlightened mind, it can't be content and peaceful where it's at. It always needs to be somewhere else. It thinks that the next new shiny object around the corner is what's going to bring the lasting satisfaction. So the unenlightened mind is going to keep chasing the objects of its affection, keep chasing that next new shiny object around the corner. But when an enlightened mind is enlightened and it's liberated, it's not going to experience that. And that's why the Buddha says this, just this, is the end of stress. Because you can be content and peaceful right here, right now. You don't need anything else. You don't want to chase after the objects of your affection because you understand all this is impermanence. And if you keep chasing after it, it's just going to lead to continued discontentedness. So the Buddha is kind of summarizing here some aspects of the enlightened mind. Any questions on this chapter? No question, the same teacher. All right.
So let's see, chapter 19. There is no you there, then Bahia. When for you there will be only the scene in reference to the scene, only the herd in reference to the herd, only the sensed in reference to the sensed, only the recognized in reference to the recognized, then Bahia. There is no you in connection with that. When there is no you in connection with that, there is no you there. When there is no you there, you are neither here, here, nor beyond, nor between the two. This, just this, is the end of stress. Okay, there's a couple of things the Buddha is pointing to here. He's pointing to the universal truth of non-self. That's where he's saying, when there is no you in connection with that, there is no you there. Right? So he's saying there is no permanent self. But what he's talking about up here in this first paragraph is actually helping you to see something that the unenlightened mind often does. Here he's saying, when for you there will be only the scene in reference to the scene. You know how when the unenlightened mind sees something and then we kind of insert in our perceptions our judgments, our opinions, our views, and then we kind of read this situation in a way that it's really not happening because we've made a whole bunch of assumptions and now we're not really seeing true reality because we've inserted in this you, we've inserted in these perceptions, we've inserted in these opinions, these views, and oftentimes those things are very false, they're misperceptions. So the Buddha is saying, when there's only the scene in reference to the scene, whatever you see, that's what you see. Don't insert in assumptions and perceptions into that. And when you hear certain things, when you hear certain things with the ear, whether it's people talking or whether it's someone who's playing music or whatever, whatever you hear, don't insert you. Don't put assumptions and perceptions into that. Same thing, things that you sense, right? And then things that you recognize. The Buddha is saying, there is no you in connection to that. So stop putting perceptions and assumptions, opinions and views into the things that you're observing. When you observe things through these six sense bases, just observe what you observe. Don't insert a whole bunch of misperceptions and assumptions and things like this, because then you're going to be making decisions on false truths. You're going to be making decisions based on the thoughts and ideas, the opinions, the perceptions, the misperceptions, the assumptions in your mind. You're going to be making decisions off of these false truths, and it's going to lead to unwholesome results because you've inserted you into what's going on. You've inserted all these feelings and all of these assumptions and opinions into what you're experiencing, right? So when there is no you in connection with that, there is no you there. When there's no you there, you are neither here nor beyond nor between the two. So the Buddha is saying there's no you there. And that's perfect. That's what you would like to get to, where you're just observing things as they are seeing true reality and the buddha says this just this is the end of stress because as long as you keep inserting assumptions perceptions misperceptions opinions views into what you're seeing what you're observing then you're going to be making decisions based on false truths and it's just going to lead to more and more complications so when you get the you out of the way 
this is the end of stress. This is where you can end discontentedness when you get this you out of the way. Questions on this chapter? No question this time, Bishop. All right. Chapter 20, the last one. I think you asked me to do this one, right, Bossum? Yeah, please, teacher. I'm going to take a drink because it must be a long one if you're asking me to do it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. So this is titled, Merely the Scene. Although, venerable sir, I am old, aged, burdened with years, advanced in life, come to the last stage. Let the perfectly enlightened one teach me the teachings in brief. Let the fortunate one teach me the teachings in brief. Perhaps I may understand the meaning of the perfectly enlightened one's statement. Perhaps I may become an heir to the perfectly enlightened one's statement. So this is a practitioner who is old, aged, getting ready to die in their kind of last stages of life and asking the Buddha to share some teachings with them and saying, maybe I can continue these teachings on. So here the Buddha speaks. What do you think, Maralankan Putta? Do you have any craving, desire, or attachment for those forms recognized by the eye that you have not seen and never saw before, that you do not see and would not think might be seen? So the Buddha is saying, hey, do you have any craving, desire, attachment through the eyes, things that you would like to see that you've never seen before? And Maralankan Putta says, no, venerable sir, I don't have anything that I wouldn't like to see. And now the Buddha goes through the other sense bases, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind. You know, is there anything that you haven't experienced through any of these six sense bases that you would like to experience? And Marilankan Putta replies to the Buddha, no, venerable sir. So essentially saying, I don't have any craving, desire, attachment through any of these six sense bases. There's nothing that I would like to do that I haven't already done, right? So now the Buddha says, here, Maralankan Putta, regarding these seen, heard, sensed, and recognized by you, in the seen, there will be merely the seen. In the heard, there will be merely the heard. In the sensed, there will be merely the sensed. In the recognized, there will be merely the recognized. When Maralankan Putta, regarding things seen, heard, sensed, and recognized by you, in the scene, there will be merely the scene. In the herd, there will be merely the herd. In the sense, there will be merely the sense. In the recognized, there will be merely the recognized. Then, Maralankan Putta, you will not be by that. So this is what I was just explaining, that not inserting our perceptions, our assumptions, our opinions and views into the things that we observe and the things that we see. Just acknowledge what you see, what you hear, and just know that that's what you've seen and heard, but don't insert your own assumptions and perceptions into that. When Maralankan Putta, you are not by that, then you will not be therein. When Maralankan Putta, you are not therein, then you will be neither here nor beyond nor in between the two. This itself is the end of discontentedness. That's what we were just talking about. Now, Marilankan Putta, I understand in detail, venerable sir, the meaning of what was stated by the perfectly enlightened one in brief. Now, the Buddha, having seen a form with mindfulness muddled, 
attending to the pleasing sign, one experiences it with an obsessed mind and remains tightly holding on to it. So this is where I say that the unelated mind chases after the objects of its affection. It's chasing those pleasant feelings and then it tries to hold on to them. That's what the Buddha is saying here. And he's talking about it in terms of seeing things through the eyes. So if you see a handsome man or you see a beautiful woman or you see a beautiful sports car or a beautiful watch and the mind gets these pleasant feelings about these things, now the mind obsesses over it. Now the mind holds on to it, wants to hold on to it and chases after the objects of its affection. So the Buddha is saying when that happens, many feelings flourish within originating from the visible form. So when you see that beautiful jewelry, now there's all these feelings that flourish in the mind because the mind wants to hold on to this beautiful jewelry that it wants to acquire from the store. Craving and annoyance as well. So this craving and annoyance arises in the mind by which one's mind becomes disturbed. For one who accumulates discontentedness thus Nibbana or enlightenment is said to be far away. So if you allow this craving desire attachment through these six sense spaces and you're chasing after the objects of your affection and you're clinging and holding on craving permanence, then there's going to be this flourishing of these feelings in the mind. And the Buddha is saying your mind's going to be disturbed. There's going to be this annoyance. Enlightenment is really far away from you because the mind is still craving and clinging through those six sense bases. So the Buddha talked about this through all the six sense bases and saying that for one who accumulates discontentedness, thus Nibbana or enlightenment is said to be far away. When firmly mindful, one sees a form, one is not inflamed by craving for forms. One experiences it with an unaffected mind and does not remain holding it tightly. So here the Buddha is saying, okay, we have this awareness, this awareness of mind, this mindfulness is firmly established in the mind. When one sees a form, a physical form, the mind is not inflamed. There's not this craving of wanting to get it. So you see this beautiful watch, you know it's a beautiful watch, but there's no craving where you just gotta have that watch. The mind experiences it unaffected and the mind does not try to hold on to it tightly. It's like, oh, wow, that's such a beautiful watch. Look at all those diamonds. Look at all that gold. It's so beautiful. But the mind doesn't arise this craving and want to chase after it or a car or this or that or that. These things are things that you might need. You might need a watch. You might need a car. You might need certain things in your life. But if we pursue that with craving, desire, attachment, then the mind's going to be shaken up. It's going to experience this disturbance. So the Buddha is saying here, someone who is more developed in their practice is going to see these things. They're going to hear certain things. They're going to smell certain things. They're going to taste certain flavors. They're going to have certain physical objects come in contact with the body. There's going to be certain mental objects in the mind, but they're not going to be inflamed by craving this mental longing and strong eagerness. The mind will be unaffected. One fares mindfully in such a way that even as one sees the form, 
And while one undergoes a feeling, discontentedness is exhausted, not built up. So here, this person is not yet enlightened. What he's describing is that, okay, you see a certain object, craving doesn't really arise, the mind is unaffected, but as there's this feeling that comes up in the mind, then discontentedness is cut off and let go. This discontentedness is exhausted. It's not built up. The mind isn't holding on to it. For one who's dismantling discontentedness, thus enlightenment or nibbana is said to be close by. So when you observe discontentedness starting to arise and you observe either bodily sensations or the feelings in the mind, if you're cutting that off and letting it go, exhausting this discontentedness, the Buddha is saying, okay, enlightenment is close by because that's what you should be doing. You would had to have developed the four foundations of mindfulness to be able to observe those bodily sensations arising and cutting it off and cutting it off and cutting it off. You're dismantling discontentedness. And the Buddha is saying enlightenment is close by, right? So he goes through all the six sense bases and explains that for you. For one diminishing discontentedness, thus enlightenment is said to be close by. Now here's Marilankamputta. It is in such a way, venerable sir, that I understand in detail the meaning of what was stated by the perfectly enlightened one in brief. Here comes the Buddha. Good, good, Marilankamputta. It is good that you understand in detail the meaning of what was stated by me in brief. The Buddha repeats himself, repeating all the prior verses in full. It is in such a way, Marilankamputta, that the meaning of what was stated by me in brief should be understood in detail. So he's basically praising Marilankamputta that, hey, the Buddha just spoke very briefly, but the student was able to extrapolate that and see the detail. Even though the Buddha spoke very briefly, he was able to dive into it and see it through his own reflections and see the truth for himself. Then the venerable Marilankamputta departed, dwelling alone, withdrawn, diligent, dedicated, and determined. And the venerable Marilankamputta became one of the Arahants. Because here you can see that the Buddha, as he asked Marilankamputta at the beginning of this, if he had any craving, desire, attachment through any of these six sense bases, and the answer was no. Marilankamputta could observe for himself that he's not having any craving desire attachment through any of these sense bases and he's understanding these teachings very deeply so at some point after he departed from the buddha he attained enlightenment during that time away any questions on this particular chapter yes teacher as for the buddha uh, praising the student uh, does this show that uh, reflection on the teachings is required to attain enlightenment? Reflection on the teachings requires is required for enlightenment? Yes, you wouldn't be able to attain enlightenment without reflecting on them because you need to learn them from a teacher, from a book, from online classes, from in-person classes, personal guidance. You need to learn the teachings, but then you need to reflect on them and you need to be able to penetrate them through your own investigation, your own examination, independently verifying the truth for yourself and then practice them 
and see the truth there to acquire wisdom. Because once you see the truth, that it truly is craving desire attachment that's causing all your discontentedness, then you know the truth. And that's where your mind gets to that steady, stable, unshakable condition. Whereas if you just have belief or you just understand these teachings intellectually, you haven't penetrated it through your direct knowledge, through your own experience. You haven't confirmed it and seen the wisdom in it. So your decisions aren't going to be informed by your own wisdom, where the decisions in your life, when you see the mind longing through the six sense bases, having craving, desire, attachment, if you know with wisdom that that's absolutely going to lead to discontentedness, then you're going to be readily willing and able to cut that off and let it go. Whereas if you just understand intellectually what the teachings are, the mind isn't going to be able to do that work because it doesn't have the wisdom to know about things like the four foundations of mindfulness, that when there's bodily sensations, to cut that off and let it go. But when you arise this wisdom through your own learning, reflection, and practice, now the mind can deeply understand these teachings and do what it's supposed to do during daily life, whether it's meditating or observing the mind through mindfulness, cutting off and letting go of the discontentedness as it's arising and you're observing those bodily sensations. There's all these million and one decisions that a practitioner needs to make in order to get to enlightenment. Enlightenment isn't this magical, mystical thing. It's gaining the wisdom through learning, reflecting, and practicing. And when you gain that wisdom, then the practitioner will make wise decisions and train their mind being dedicated, diligent, and determined to actively train the mind in the direction of enlightenment. But you need to be able to have that wisdom of the Buddhist teachings to be able to do that. I'm so sure that this was the question to have for today. Okay. Well, I would like to thank all of you guys for joining us for today's class and suggest to you that if you would like to participate in our future classes and you're tracking along with us, whether you're in the class or you're listening to this on the replay or on the podcast or something like that, that next week what we're going to be doing is chapters 21 through 31. That's the entire book where normally we would just go 21 to 30. There's just one more chapter after that, which is 31. So if you would like to prepare for next class, just read chapters 21 through 31, and we're going to be discussing those in the same way that we do in all of these classes. So thank you all for joining in today's class, and this discussion has been really helpful to go through all of these teachings. We'll go through the next section, and then the following week will be in volume five. Volume five is the first stage of enlightenment. This is where we're really going to dive into some really deep, meaty teachings to really help you get into that first stage of enlightenment. That's what volume five is all about. Tomorrow in the group learning program on Sunday, we're going to be in chapter 11, which is titled Meditation, Developing Your Practice. This is where I'm going to go through in a detailed fashion, explaining the four types of meditations that the Buddha taught in order to get to enlightenment. We're going to talk about the four positions. We're going to talk about all these different aspects of meditation that you're going to encounter as part of developing your meditation practice. And of course, there's going to be opportunity for you to ask questions and be sure that you can build up your practice because you're going to need that in order to get to enlightenment. 
So we'll do that on Sunday, which is tomorrow at the same time, whether you'd like to join live or if you can't join live, you'll be able to listen on the replay through Facebook, YouTube or our podcast. And then on Wednesday, we're going to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation as a group. Same time that we come together as our normal classes, but we'll just be doing breathing mindfulness meditation together as a group and then opening things up for any questions that you guys have. You can ask questions in these classes, but as you think about and reflect on these teachings, questions might come up for you. So we have at each class, whether it's Sunday, Wednesday, or Saturday, an opportunity for you to ask questions and get clarifications on any of the teachings that you're learning and how to implement them into your practice, because that's where the real work is being done. That's where the real condition of the mind is improving is when you're taking these teachings from the learning, you're reflecting on them and you're moving them into your practice. That's where the condition of the mind is really changing and improving to move closer to this enlightened mental state. So I'll see you guys either next Saturday or for perhaps I may even see you on Sunday and Wednesday in the group learning program. Have a lovely rest of your day. We'll see you next time. Sawadikap. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.